From the hills of central New York, in the heart of the Finger Lakes, this is Frankly Speaking. I'm your host, Frank Rossi. From California, my name is Mark Mahaddy. I'm president of Mark and Mahaddy & Associates Incorporated. We are a turfgrass research and consulting company. As of February 2022, we will have been in business for 30 years. And my passion really is to bring value and quality to everyone that we work with. Mark Maddy has spent more than 40 years in the turfgrass industry from his days at Somerset Country Club in St. Paul, Minnesota, then Chemlon, and the last 30 years as the president of Mark Mahaddy and Associates based in Carmel, California. I've gotten to know Mark for many visits during crop science and golf industry meetings. Before we get to my conversation with Mark, and since it's winter weather conditions, it's time for many to be thinking microdochium patch control and the industry standard Civitas Turf Defense. Civitas Turf Defense from Intelligro combined with phosphites have become the industry standard for control, especially for those seeking more organic programs less reliant on traditional chemistry. Learn more about Civitas Turf Defense, available from a variety of distributors throughout the U.S. and Canada in pre-mixed and ready-to-mix formulations, or visit CivitasTurfDefense.com. Mark, thanks so much for taking the time to join me. I'm, I'm so glad we were able to work this out. It's always a highlight of my year uh, when we get a few minutes at a crop science meeting or a golf industry meeting. In preparation for this, I realized you're one of the few guys I get to talk to older than me. Um, and I guess my <laughs> I first question, you know, I know you grew up in Minnesota and I, you know, I know you went off to college in, in 72. My question is, did you have a number? for the draft? Yes, I did. Luckily, my number was really high. Huh. So it was like 317. Unfortunately or fortunately, my older brother, Jim, who is one year older than I am, his number was like 14. Mm. Luckily, during the Vietnam War, he, they stopped taking people for the draft about 7 to 14 days prior to when he was going to be called. It's not something that we often talk about much anymore, right? You would be the last generation, the last age right. group, really, to even, exactly. even get numbers. So you start waxing floors uh, of the maintenance shop at Somerset Country Club for oh. a buck an hour when you're right. 13. Mm -hmm. I didn't get to wax the floor. I got to chase a rotary around the trees <laughs> uh, at golf courses when I was 13 years old. So you obviously had an immediate attraction to this business and is that what you went off to the University of Minnesota to study back in the mid-70s? Actually, you know, it's a great question, Frank, and the answer to that is no. You know, Jerry Murphy was the superintendent at Somerset Country Club. He hired me, as you mentioned, to wash and wax the, the shop floor. Then I started working every summer on the maintenance crew and learned all the things that you normally do when you work on maintenance crews. But I, for some reason, I had this in my brain that I was going to get a Ph.D. in plant breeding. So I'm, I'm in agronomy at the University of Minnesota, and I'm working with Dr. Arnie Holman, who is a plant breeder in, uh, with reed canary grass, and I'm not enjoying it in the least bit. <laughs> and I'll never forget, I'm out at the Rosemont Field Station, and I'm harvesting reed canary grass. It's 100 degrees and 98% humidity, and I'm going, God, what am I supposed to do with my life? <laughs> and it was like he hit me with a two-by-four and sent me this subliminal message of, Mark, I bet you can get a master's in turf grass research. I spoke to Jerry Murphy, and he set me up, if you can believe it, with Dr. Jim Watson, who at the time was the vice president at Toro, mm -hmm. 
and Dr. Watson took me to lunch at the Catholic Club in Minneapolis, and we looked at opportunities for all the best schools in the U.S., and I chose the University of California and, and had the opportunity to be accepted there and to go work with Dr. Vic Younger and Dr. Vic Chabot at UCR. So, you've done such a wonderful job in outlining that. I had a feeling you were not a turf major uh, when you went to college. And plant breeding is that kind of meticulousness, right? It requires, uh, you know, in spite of doing it in the conditions, there must Mm -hmm. have been something about the meticulousness that appealed to you because I've seen your research reports uh, from your current (laughs) company. And, And I marvel at the meticulousness with which you present that information. Would you describe yourself as meticulous? First of all, thanks, Frank, for your kind comments. And yes, I've always been very detail-oriented ever since I was very young. And it's always been something that's very important to me. And I think that that's why one of the reasons I do enjoy the discovery process, statistics, and the whole process of field research. So you get to California out of reed canary grass and humidity into the desert, essentially, at Riverside. And you work Uh with two of what I know to be academic legends, not just in that part of the world, but around the world, right? I mean, you know, Mary Lush's work in Australia was inspired by Vic Youngner's work in California. And you think of the old California researchers, you know, Madison, was it Madison in Northern California that did the original uh, California specifications for greens construction there's a long history of big names out there that you right. got yourself mm-hmm. attached to. What was that like? It was hard even to describe, Frank. I mean, it was young boy goes to California, young Midwestern boy goes to California in search of blonde girls and surfboards and, <laughs> and turf grass signs. That's what it was. And so I'll, I'll tell you this story. I always thought I was going to get a master's and then go back to Minnesota and be a golf course superintendent. But it's Super Bowl Sunday. It's January, like, 17th, 1977. I've been at UCR for six months. It's a Sunday morning. We're playing over the line and drinking beer at 1030 in the morning out in this beautiful Kukia Grass athletic sports field at UCR. And I've got this party that's going to have uh, all sorts of illicit substances at it that <laughs> afternoon. And it's 72 degrees. And I'm going, I love this. I'm never going back to Minnesota. You know what? It's a long story of people from Minnesota that I meet when I go to the desert. In fact, I just met this guy who just retired at Arizona State University. Maybe uh, you know him there. Uh, His name escapes me, but he was the painting expert. He just retired from Arizona State University. Another good Minnesota boy goes out there, looks around one day in January, February, March, April, November, December, (laughs) and says, what? Why would I go back to to the great state of Minnesota and stays out in California? Okay, so you've made the decision personally, right? Right. You're still young and ambitious. What were you able to work with these folks on in Southern California? Well, so Vic and Vic, Vic Younger and Vic Jabot, and then Steve Cochran, too, were instrumental in guiding my life. In my master's, you know, they let me make my own decisions, they let me make my own mistakes, and then they helped me correct my mistakes. And they were just exceptional researchers, exceptional agronomists, and the best people ever. And they were wonderful mentors. My father actually passed away very suddenly of a heart attack in 77 in the middle of my master's, and... Vic and Vic really stepped it up, stepped up in terms of emotional 
support and the like. Mm -hmm. So it was just really fantastic. And then after I finished my master's, I worked in the department until 83, and we worked on an extremely large funded project through the Southern California Metropolitan Water District in which we were establishing the ET rates for warm and cool season grasses. And that information is still extremely sound today. Uh, but those were really the things that the fact that I got an opportunity to one to work with just two, three actually with Steve Cochran, two giants in the turf grass industry. They were such good people that were so innovative and they were such good listeners and they, they appreciated everyone's contributions. And it was just one of those things that um, it was kind of like heaven for a very, very young Midwestern boy. And working with those folks at that time, there wasn't a lot of people doing it. I mean, it wasn't like it was a, a booming thing. The golf boom hadn't happened yet. It was still the 70s. Golf was still not what it is uh, anywhere today, certainly after the golf boom of the 90s. And I'm wondering when you say got a chance to make some mistakes. I often talk about that uh, on this program for with a lot of people who say some of the mistakes they made are the things they've learned the most from. When you work in an encouraging environment like you described, I don't think you probably made a lot of them. But what were some of your really good mistakes? Because I'm sure you had some fun ones. Well, I, I think the biggest thing, Frank, is that, you know, when, when you're young, you're, you're indestructible and you think you're smarter than you really are. <laughs> um, it wasn't so much of mistakes as such, but it was, I was greatly challenged by the academic level of classes and that at UCR. You know, I was a young master's student, freshman bachelor's, and I was thrown to a lot of PhD classes with a lot of people that were smarter than I was going to be in like 10 lifetimes. <laughs> And so I'll never forget it. One of my first classes was a high cell physiology class. Dr. Leonard was teaching. He was a high cell physiologist. And I thought I was pretty bright, okay? So he covered everything I knew about plant physiology in three lectures. And then I knew I was in really, really deep trouble. <laughs> so those were the types of things. It was a very humbling experience. There were a lot of really exceptionally bright and qualified people but I've always been a hard worker, and Vic and Vic supported me in those trials and tribulations at times with some of the, the really high-level classes. It actually worked out really well because I had, I think I had other skills other than just the academic skills that, that really helped me get through my troubling time. Okay. So you finished up at UCR. You did those ET rate things until the early 80s, and then right. you had a stint with Chemlon. What was that about? It was really fantastic, and I'll be honest with you, if I had not had the Chemlon experience, I wouldn't be able to be doing what I'm doing today, Frank. Hmm. So I started with them in 1983. They wanted me to move from Riverside, California to Carmel, California, and pay me twice as much money as I was making. <laughs> and and so, so I said, I asked them, I said, so do I have to go home and pack, or do I just leave from this spot? <laughs> And so it was really great, Frank. So I had the Western United States. I had eight Western states. I oversaw of the Salinas Field Station, and then we had cooperative research with, with Vic and Vic and Steve at the UCR uh, Field Station with Tom Cook at Oregon State, and then with Dorothy Borland in Colorado. And so I, I had responsibilities for developing turf and tree and trail programs and 17 branch facilities with my three research stations. I worked from West Texas to Seattle and from Boise to San Diego. 
and I had absolutely no life because I was on the road 80% of the time, but I just loved it. It was such a, a great, great growing experience. And I got a, a chance to work with just exceptional senior scientists that also worked for Camron back in the Ohio, in the Columbus, Ohio area. Yeah. Uh, Dave Martin and Kirk Herzog, Kirk, Keith yeah. Kennedy, Dave Shetler, uh, Doug Caldwell, John Ulrichs, Bobby Joyner, Bob Miller. This was the heyday, Mark. You, you're like the Forrest Gump in his business. You, you, I know. You, I mean, it's just, <laughs> you know, I, I can't say enough about it. This was during the 80s when lawn care was in its sweet spot. I had an opportunity to just work with tremendously knowledgeable, driven and talented people that channeled all this extremely positive energy. And I'll be honest with you, and I have a lot of respect for all the university people that I've known for years. In the 80s, our research team, I would have compared them to anyone in the world across all the facets of turf and ornamental research. It was an exceptional group. Yeah, I mean, the concept of being able to industrialize the American lawn the way Chemlon did was sort of taking the sort of Scott's do-it-yourselfer model to this guaranteed your lawn's going to look perfect all the time because we right. developed the technology, the chemical technology to deliver those things. Now, when you're doing that during those days, it was also at a time people should understand there wasn't the same kind of environmental pressure. It was looked on more like this miracle and nobody really thought much about it. Certainly to the mid, maybe the late 80s was a little different, but when you got into it, there really wasn't the kind of environmental concerns we have about these things now, were there? You're exactly right, Frank. And I think that that gave us a lot of leeway, although I must honestly say is that Kemlon, in the mid to later 80s, Kemlon started to be subject to some of those philosophical perspectives. And so, I mean, one of the things that I was in charge was, and I was always very proud of, is that in the West, we developed the National Organic Fertilizer Program for the whole company. We worked all over the Western United States with all of these people that had this tremendous knowledge about organic materials. And these were 100% natural organic products, primarily DPW, plus blood meal and meat meal, things like that. And they were exceptional fertilizers. They were every bit as good as any, at the time, any polymer-coated sulfur-coated urea that you could possibly acquire. Did it come out of the gun or was it granular app? No, it was granular. We worked with Morning Fresh Farms, it was a large uh, poultry farm group um, out of Plateau, Colorado, and they were incredibly innovative. They were just very, very good industrialists and very practical people that had really good insight. Their products actually became rich lawn products out of Denver, Colorado. And the thing about Camelon overall, Frank, that was just so wonderful, what it allowed me to do is really benefit from building a professional research and technical network across all the specialties of turf and ornamentals in the Western United States, really gave me an opportunity also to learn what I would perceive to be would be basic business practices. Because I was in a zone office in Monterey. We had a vice president, regional managers, HR, marketing people, accountants. And so I learned a lot about how to do a P&L, how to do forecasts, how to price services, you know, and those types of things. So it, it was the total package, not only from a research technical agronomic perspective, but also the things that you need to learn about businesses and with business if you're going to have a future company of your own. You know, I want to talk to you about getting to your company in a mm -hmm. second, but before I do, I've always marveled at the Chemlon gun. Mm -hmm. 
Nutrient management of golf turf is always a lively topic of discussion among golf course superintendents. Clipping volume, OM246, MLSN, all are important topics. And when it comes to supplying those nutrients, you want simple, no-nonsense solutions. And that's where the Plant Food Company comes in. Plant Food Company, based in New Jersey, is a family-owned and operated fertilizer company since 1946. The professionals at Plant Food Company strive to provide the latest technology at affordable prices and backs them with their commitment to servicing the industry and golf course superintendents. They've the research to back up their claims and products for all your nutrient management needs. Learn more at plantfoodcompany.com. I've always marveled at the Chemlon gun, the high volume applicator that you guys developed or innovated back in the mm-hmm. day that essentially made it, well, had a lot of forgiveness. Let's just say that raindrop nozzle right. gave the applicators a lot of room for error and the lawn could still come out pretty good. You know, thinking right. back in your mind, was that one of the keys to success of the business that it could be? things could be applied in a way that made them idiot proof in some ways. And also that presented some challenges for what you and I know are effective ways to apply things that you want to land on the leaf. Right. No, you're exactly right, Frank. I mean, if you could imagine it, at that four gallon per thousand square foot spray volume, that is such a dilute solution. And the droplet size, as you mentioned, is large. But the dilution was really the key to the, the whole concept. You could go to Boise, Idaho. And we would have a pound and a half of urea. We would have 12 ounces of ferrous sulfate. We would have austenol, which was, at the time, <laughs> the, the top insecticide for dove bug control. Yeah. We would have a pre-emergent herbicide as pendomethalin. We, we would probably have five or six different things in the mix at a single time. Yeah. And that high spray volume, tremendously high spray volume, was the insurance factor to make sure that nothing burned and that nothing went bump in the night. But it did make certain types of applications that needed to be on the leaves a little more challenging. How did you deal with that? To tell you the truth, so if you were a Chemlon specialist, you would go out and you'd have, you know, this large tank. And if you were lucky, if you were in Boise, you'd have maybe 30 customers a day. And so most of it was a single application concept. People did have backpack sprayers and hand cans, Frank, that Ah. people would go out for problem lawns, thistles, things like that, let's say in Boise. And you had to use, you know, 2,4-D ester at a higher label rate than what we could get. And then you'd have to make applications of lower spray volumes for certain types of problems. And so one of the things that that required was a knowledgeable applicator. And I'm wondering, is that model struggling now, not just from the variety of other reasons, but it's hard to get committed, knowledgeable applicators to make those decisions in the field. And certainly the gun helped with that. But I would imagine with the labor shortages we're having today, Mark, this has got to be a tough business to run. Yeah, and I think that's a very sound perspective. One of the things that we took a lot of pride in is that during the winter season, myself, Dr. John Law, and Dave Hansen, who was a technical zone technical specialist, and then Dr. John Law was the regional technical manager, we would travel to all the branch facilities and do training every winter. 
and we would generally spend anywhere from two to three days in each branch, bringing everyone up to date on the new research work that we had done the previous year, and then reemphasizing best management techniques as they got in the field. None of those people work with Chemlon anymore. And to my knowledge, the number of regional technical managers for the company that's now True Green is greatly, greatly reduced. Hmm. So I would think that they not only have trouble getting the diligent, hardworking people they want to get for those types of specialist positions, but I also think that the people such as myself and Dr. John Law and Dave Hansen that used to do all the training, those people are far and few between also. You said you learned a lot about starting and running your own business Mm -hmm. while you were there. I would imagine there was a moment when you looked around and said, okay, I think I'm ready to have my own business. What was that turning point for you to leave such an exciting environment and then go off on your own? I had really been going through that thought process in my mind the last two to three years that I was with Chemlon. And my goal really originally was to leave the company and then to get a teaching position, a nine-month teaching position at UC Santa Cruz, at Monterey Peninsula College, at uh, San Luis Obispo, or someplace like that, and then consult during the summer season. But when I eventually left Chemlon, and the reason I left Chemlon is that my position was, was eliminated, Ecolab took over and they made all sorts of cuts across the company in the Western States research position went south. My last day was Christmas Eve, 1991. I played golf and drank gin and tonics for three months, and then I started my own company, Mark and Mahatty Associates, um, on February 1st, 1992. And so I was kind of forced into the process. It was kind of like the universe is saying, well, Mark, if you're not willing to start this on your own, I think we'll help you a little bit. And so my, my position was eliminated. I had saved a fair amount of money when I was with Chemlon. I put together a business plan, and I said, I'm going to do this for two years. I didn't want to leave the Monterey area because I loved it. I had opportunities in Palm Springs and Orange County and Denver, but I, I wanted to see if I could make this work, and it was something that was very, very important to me. And it's really worked out very well. And so it's very clear to me, Mark, that a lot of things conspired Uh, in addition to those things personally. But being in California, you know, you had Ali back in the day, Mm -hmm. but California is a big state and it's not a very extensive extension system. And so it relied on people like you to solve some of these issues that, you know, there just was only so much one outfit in Northern California that Ali had and one in Southern California right. that the Vicks had. You, you couldn't service everything. And so obviously that w- was a part of it. But also you seem to really take to the evaluation of products and programs that superintendents could use immediately. Was that the core of your business plan at the beginning, Mark, you know, testing chemicals and testing programs to service superintendents? That's exactly what it was. And the thing that, that I always very was very proud of is I made more money on my own in the first nine months than I made in my last full year with Chemlon. <laughs> so the fact was, Frank, there was a real opportunity out there. And we built this, this really great communication network with all of the product development companies that I had worked with when I was with Kemla. Mm-hmm. And I just called them up and I said, I spoke to them because I knew them all personally. And I said, I'm putting out my little flag here and these are my rates. Send me protocols if you'd like me to do the work. 
And so we always had great sites. We always had great cooperators. And these people knew the integrity of our work. And the business really took off very, very rapidly. And the thing that was great about it is that it allowed me to work once again in my first love, which was the golf course industry. You know, lawn care was great. Tree and shrub care was great. And it was a great foundation of additional research and technical information. But then I was able to get back into the golf course industry, what I was really loved. And I happened to be, you know, working in the Monterey Peninsula. And some of my first clients were the Pebble Beach Company and Cypress Point. And I felt like a young man in a candy store. So let's talk a little bit about the way you structured your business over your happy anniversary, soon to be 30 years. How much of what you're doing has evolved to discovery, uh, proof of concept, uh, solving hard-to-solve problems? Um, How would you characterize your business now, Mark? Um, right now, after 30 years, about 65 to 70% of the revenues are still driven through contract research rank. Mm-hmm. And the remainder, 30 to 35%, would be in golf course consulting. And so we have a tremendous, I think, a very, very good reputation to, for high-quality work, problem-solving with product development companies, and then being able to translate that information and bringing it to key players within the golf course industry. And that's really the... I think, the the strength of our our research business. And the other thing that we've also, too, is over time, I really consider our business, although we do high-quality field research, we are also very good at providing information to new product development companies to help find niches in the turf grass industry. But we're also working in Pinot Noir and Chardonnay wine grapes now. So the business has sort of expanded into a number of different areas that are all associated with soil, water, and plant systems. But you're exactly right. The primary basis and foundation is still contract research. It's still looking for a new discovery process for uh, product development companies um, in the U.S. and out of the U.S. and how they can translate that research information into value and viable products for the end user. Okay. So now I want to get into the weeds on this part of your business. I got a couple of topics I'd like to get your perspective on. You know, you're out there and you get this very niche problem, the anguina nematode issue, right? Right. Uh, That's forced some places to just get rid of annual bluegrass and grow bentgrass. So talk a little bit about working on a problem that unique, right, to just Northern California to a certain extent. And then we could get the rapid blight. I know Larry and, and, you know, dips in rapid blight stuff that happens up there too. But I particularly want to talk about the anguina nematode. How much of a challenge has it been dealing with that particular soil organism? Anguina pacifica, also known as the Pacific stem gall nematode, is the most devastating pest or problem I've ever seen at annual bluegrass putting green, ever. <laughs> so we've been working with the problem for about 18 years on the Monterey Peninsula. It's been supported by product development companies. The research has by the Pebble Beach Company, Cypress Point, uh, Monterey Peninsula Country Club, the Northern California Golf Course Association, and all of these groups. It is a endoparasitic nematode that has two to three different life cycles throughout the course of the year depending on soil temperatures. He was first brought to everyone's attention by, in 1978, a farm advisor up in Alameda County that identified it at Pebble Beach and Spyglass. Obviously, Nemecure was fairly effective for control early, but then what happened is with 
repeat use of Nemecure, you eventually developed a microbial population in the soil that would feed on active ingredients. So the more you use Nemecure at higher rates, the less efficacious it was. And so over the last 18 years, we have screened probably over, without exaggeration, probably 80 to 90 different active ingredients and active ingredient combinations in replicated field trials. I just got the counts back from Billy Crow last week, so we did the last sampling on our 2021 trial right now, and we'll also most likely have work in 2022. Through the support of the superintendents groups and product development companies, Fluopyram or Indemnify and Avamectin or uh, Avid, now called Dividum, had been very effective controlled measures when used in combination as a rotational program. So it's been a great challenge. It, as you had mentioned, Frank, it's actually driven some people out of the annual bluegrass hunting green business mm-hmm. and has really driven a lot of people to go to creeping bentgrass hunting green. Is there any evidence it's making its way over to bentgrass, or is it really a specific problem? You know, the exceptional nematologist, uh, Dr. McClure from the University of Arizona, he did early testing uh, in terms of evaluations of, of a substrate susceptibility with creeping bentgrass. And although he could get a slight level of infection with the J2 and the juveniles, on some of them, they were never really able to reproduce and to spread as they are with Polanyi or annual bluegrass. So right now, the, the overall perspective is that we believe that the varieties of creeping bentgrass that are available really are not susceptible at this point to Inguina Pacifica, although they can be susceptible to root knot nematode, to ring nematode, and other types of soil-borne nematodes. I couldn't talk to a guy from Northern California and not bring up annual bluegrass management and suppression. Managing soil physical properties is a vital aspect of any successful golf operation. The many tasks required take time and pay dividends. But what if it could take less time and be more effective? Dryject sand injection services are that kind of a tool that can increase infiltration and alleviate compaction by top dressing, aerating, and amending in one pass. Dryject services gives you the benefit of water injection cultivation and fills the profile with your desired amending material. Contact your local DryJack service representatives or visit DryJack.com. I couldn't talk to a guy from Northern California and not bring up annual bluegrass management and suppression. One of the very few times I got to wander around research plots with you when we were up at Andy's place uh, in Northern Mm -hmm. California. And we were going through your findings, at least initially at that time, on trim it and cutlass uh, in primo impacts on annual bluegrass and and creeping bentgrass as well. And I want to get to that, but I want to start out with in general, you know, when you've been around an area that long, Mark, you've seen a lot of things come and go to try to deal with or manage annual bluegrass, whether it's seed head suppression, anguina, anthracnose, or even trying to do bentgrass, right, nowadays uh, in that climate. One of the ones that resonates was the Australian program, the high volume 
growth regulators, low nitrogen, high right. iron, drove Tom Cook crazy there for a couple of years watching his uh, well, well-educated students adapt that program. I, I'd like right. you to just first take a 30,000-foot view of, of annual bluegrass o- over your 30 years in that area, and then I want to talk to you a little bit about some of your latest findings on suppression. So, annual bluegrass, have you been able to service both sides of it, growing it and keeping it out? Yes, I have. And I think it's kind of a an artistic expression, Frank. <laughs> I think that those people that have uh, very old golf courses that really are artists in terms of creating services, they can do a very, very good job with annual bluegrass. Now, it is obviously a much higher import grass than creeping bent grass. It is susceptible to many more diseases in our area, susceptible to Anguina Pacifica, as you mentioned, and really has many summer challenges such as rapid light and the light, summer patch, um, microdokian patch, to name just a few. It can be maintained. You have to be an exceptional superintendent with a lot of experience to maintain it really well. Creeping bentgrass on the other side, um, once you do get it established properly with some of the new products that are coming online with Chameleon, HM0814, with Methiazone and the like, the uniformity of the new creeping bent grasses, and one of them in particular, Pure Distinction, which has done really well in our area, the uniformity is exceptional, uh, ball roll is exceptional, and you just don't have to worry about as many in, in our particular climate because we have very moderate uh, humidities and very moderate temperatures. You don't have to worry about as many diseases. You don't have to worry about as many nematode problems. Sustainability overall is is much better with creeping bentgrass in our marketplace. So you and I have lived long enough to actually be able to say we can keep annual bluegrasses out of these bentgrass surfaces now? You know, it's really interesting, and we always want to go back to, well, (laughs) what's the real life that's going on in the field? Chris Dahlheimer took over. Chris was the director of agronomy for the Pebble Beach Company, and he took over at Monterey Peninsula Country Club when Bob Zoller was there. Mm -hmm. And Bob established pure distinction uh, putting greens on the sh- on the dunes course, and I think they've been in the ground about five, maybe six years now. And I was on the golf course last year with Chris, and the greens are still virtually perfect. They have excellent Poanya pickers at Monterey Peninsula Country Club, and they also um, have very extremely sound agronomic programs. They have a little bit of invasion along collar areas and the like, but I just spoke with Chris several weeks ago, and he said that they are continuing to do a really good job. So if you take exceptional establishment, if you have a really good superintendent, if you do hand-picking early, and now with, obviously, we've always had Benzolid, or we've had it for many years, and now with Camilleron coming on board, hopefully in California within two to three years, and Matthias Zolan, hopefully a shorter track than that, and all of the knowledge that we have of keeping annual bluegrass out of perennial ryegrass fairways and perennial ryegrass surrounds, mm-hmm. you know, with prodiamine, with barricade, with ethafumazate and the like, with trimit and cutlass, I think we're really in a better position, Frank, than we ever have to be able to justify the use of creeping bentgrass on cutting greens, even in Northern California. One of the things that struck me when we got to wander around out at Andy's place was your statement about the harshness of trim it 
paclobutrazole on bent grass compared right. to what you saw Cutlass doing at right. the time. Now, this is a few years past that, Mark, uh, and I'm wondering if you couldn't speak to a little bit about, you know, an old concept in selective weed control that weed control products are generally growth regulators of some sort, or they could be cell division right. inhibitors, but in general, they're growth regulators that at certain rates are lethal to one and not another, and that's how they get some of their selectivity. Right. You showed me something that I really hadn't paid much attention to. I know I've seen before, but I always thought it was a price that Bankgrass could pay uh, the beating mm-hmm. it took from Trimit at certain times of the year. I wonder where right. your thinking is now on this, Mark, uh, these two particular products, particularly Cutlass and, you know, the, the Florprimidol versus Paclobutrazole, because one of them was new to the California market and you were trying to help them understand it at the time. Can you speak to the impact of these different growth regulators on on the BENT-POA interaction? Right. And I think, Frank, and I have to give credit where credit is due, we did a lot of the early work with Pacrobutrosol um, in California, and then we did some work with Flipromol, uh prior to registration in California. But I'll tell you, the golf course superintendents in the Monterey Peninsula, uh, people like Austin Daniels, Andy Magnasco, and Adric Ryan, and the like, those three individuals in particular... They did as much really innovative observational research work on their golf courses to really come up with what I perceive to be extremely sound overall concepts for the use of cutlass and trim it. And kind of the big take-home message is, is that at least from my experience with those PGRs, trim it has always had a higher plant growth regulator capacity than cutlass. Cutlass has always been a softer product. And so what we saw when these golf course superintendents started um, reducing trimmit rates and increasing cutlass rates is that they would still overall be able to achieve the same level of oania suppression, but they weren't inhibiting the growth and development of creeping bentgrass as much. In other words, the cutlass with um, higher use rates and the trimmit with lower use rates, the balance that they were using allowed continued suppression of poania, but without negatively influencing the biomass production as much of the actively growing beneficial grass, the creeping bentgrass. In so many cases, and, and I learned about this all from Andy and Adric and Austin, a lot of the superintendents now are looking at rates of anywhere from 20 to 24 ounces of cutlass every, every three weeks under active growing conditions when they have mixed uh, creeping bentgrass and poor greens. And they will use different levels, different tank mix combinations with Trinit that range anywhere from, let's say, four to eight ounces per acre, depending on the growth rate. So when they get into really high active spring flushes or during the summer month and they want to reduce their, the growth rate on their putting greens, they increase the Trinit rate and as a tank mix within cutlet. And that's really worked out, I think, tremendously well for a lot of people, and it's really based on the innovative nature of superintendents on the Monterey Peninsula. And I want to say thank you for bringing up innovative superintendents because our paths are now about to cross in Southern California. Uh, mm-hmm. I took my second visit to Palm Springs, and I got around mm-hmm. with your pal Tim Putnam, good Tom Cook, Oregon State Beaver alumnus. And I want to say that I've gotten to visit the superintendents in the Scottsdale area, and now mm-hmm. I've started to visit some of the superintendents in Palm Springs area. 
And, right. you know, you and I know that those are golf markets essentially that continue to sustain themselves on overseeding, you know, right. completely overseeding the property. They're going to face a lot of challenges in the next bunch of years. But I wonder if you couldn't talk just a little bit about what you marvel watching superintendents in the desert do their craft in a completely different way than you watch the superintendents in the North do. Right. Very good point. I mean, the, the superintendents, the Tim Putnam's, the Rick Saul's, the Craig Ellerson's, the Lane Stavis, all of the finest superintendents that have learned how to grow grass so well, and even the Jeff Marcos, who Jeff used to be obviously at the Vintage Club and now he's at Cypress Point, they learned how to manage Bermuda grass and they learned how to have two distinct crops, Bermuda grass and then an overseeded grass during the course of the year. With that being said, they've all learned about water. They've learned about equipment. They've learned about feeding rates. they learned about the exact conditions that you need to germinate perennial ryegrass, that you can't start too early, that you really need to be patient and wait until that first, you know, the first 10 days of October if you want to have the best conditions for perennial ryegrass growth. And with that said, the core group of superintendents in the Palm Springs market are some of the most unique individuals in the fact, I believe, that they share information probably as as readily as any group I've ever seen. They're always sharing information about what they're doing this year, about what they did last year. There's a group of them that have lunch every Thursday. It's the Thursday lunch group, and it'll be 10 or 15 of the best ones in the marketplace. They have lunch together. They talk about their families. They talk about their their vacations, but they talk about turf, and they always talk about what their successes have been, what they would never do again in 100 years, and how they can get better the next year. Talk about something that's an art form, right? The, you know, Correct. not so much going into the transition, but, but transitioning right. out uh, back into Bermuda grass. I have to say, I, I completely marvel at what those guys are doing. And I, one little more deep dive here about light. It seems mm-hmm. like the more successful they are in getting a quick, good, dense ryegrass cover, the Mm -hmm. tougher it is sometimes to come out of it in the transition in April and May. Correct. And Mm -hmm. light tends to be one of the bigger factors as well as frost, I would assume. But can you talk a little bit about things you've played around with or learned about the role light can play in helping them transition out, getting it open sooner? Right, and and I think that Wendy and Larry from Pace Consulting have, have really done a great job with this. They did comparisons years ago about the effects of mowing height and light receptiveness lower in the canopy for more rapid Bermuda grass growth and development in the spring and coming out of transition. And I think now also, Frank, and you have tremendous experience, I know, with this in the transition zone in the southeast, is that some of the golf courses are obviously going to chemical transition, too, if they don't feel that they can get the 90 to 100 days um, during the summer months that they need in order to develop that excellent Bermuda grass canopy, again, for that overseeding in late September and early October. It's so interesting. They practically bring it to death, and then in 100 days, it gets perfect. And then they beat it up again and regrow a golf course uh, twice a year. Now, listen, Mark, I'm going to get you out of here on on this uh, question. It's really been a challenging time, I think, for a lot of people personally. 
I know with COVID and, and not being able to see everybody, it was exceptionally nice to see everybody at the crop science meetings. Right. You know, you've talked pretty candidly about working pretty hard to the exclusion of other things. And certainly that's a topic that reson- resonates with me. Uh, I know sometimes <laughs> I've sacrificed things personally to make sure I was pretty good professionally. Mm-hmm. And I wonder about, you know, your Minnesotan and more reserved, let's say. How has it been making your way personally through the pandemic? Have you picked up some things about the way you take care of yourself better? I think as we get older, we learn how to take care of ourselves better. I'm wondering how it's been for you personally through this time. Good question. You know, that's it's interesting. So my son is 24 and he's back in Vermont and he graduated from Middlebrae College and decided to stay back in Vermont because he's enjoying it. Started his own photography business. And I was talking to Adam recently, and I said, you know, I think COVID and I think the pandemic had a bigger influence on me socially than I thought it would. Because I'm, like you said, I have a tendency to be a little bit reserved. I enjoy my my time by myself. I enjoy my social time. But one of the things that I've really done, Frank, one of my New Year's resolutions this year is to reach out more to people that I love and care for and that I thoroughly enjoy as friends and a professional friends. And I've already started doing that. I've made a, some real efforts in the last two months to get out, to spend time with people I care for. And this went back to the UCR Field Day in September. I, it was the first general meeting I'd been to in like 18 months. And I couldn't believe it. We all had masks on, and, and we were all following the appropriate CDC guidelines and that. But after I left that meeting, I thought, my gosh, I had such a good time. It was so good to see people again. And that's the same way I felt when I saw you at the C5 meetings Mm -hmm. in Salt Lake City. So one of my New Year's goals is Mark loves his work, but it's time also to get out and to do more things socially and to just spend more time with people that you really love and care for. Mark, I really appreciate you taking the time. I know it was a longer interview than maybe you might have been prepared for, but I had it up my sleeve for a really long time to really Thanks, have Frank. this long-form conversation with you. It's such a joy to hear your voice and, and to hear you still thriving and doing well out there. Appreciate you taking the time to chat with me. Thank you for your time. I feel very blessed. It's wonderful to have professional people such as yourself in my life, Frank. I really appreciate it. Love it, Mark. Thanks a lot. Big thanks to Mark Mahaddy for taking the time to chat. Frankly Speaking is brought to you by our friends at Dryject, the only machine that aerates top dresses and amends in one pass. The Plant Food Company providing nutrient management solutions to golf course superintendents to enhance playability for 40 years. And Intelligro, makers of Civitas, a fungicide that's so much more. You can listen to us on Blog Talk Radio, Apple Podcasts, and Stitcher. If you listen on Apple Podcasts, leave us a review. Frankly Speaking is produced at Rep Studios in downtown Ithaca by Nate Richardson. Big thanks to marketing and business management John Kiger, graphic design Nicole Rossi, theme music Tucker Rossi, and executive producer Peter McCormick. I'm Frank Rossi. Thank you for joining us.